0: Hello and welcome to this Brainland podcast. I'm Stephen Brown. You've just heard part of the Hallelujah Chorus from a concert at the Royal Albert Hall called Messiah From Scratch, featuring something called the Really Big Chorus. This celebrated annual event features literally thousands of singers, not just from the UK but from all over the world, and has been going on since 1974. Today, one of the chief organisers of this extravaganza, is a very good friend of mine, Trevor Ford. Trevor is a polymath musician, manager, teacher, author, collector and acknowledged expert in Chinese porcelain, and that's only a part of the wide range of activities in which he excels. He's currently a professor in the academic studies department at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which he manages to fit in among all the other stuff. We've known each other... Since we were 11 years old when we both turned up at East Ham Grammar School for Boys in East London and we both benefited from the brilliant free peripatetic music system that was available to working class kids like us in those days. I thought for this podcast I'd ask Trevor to tell us his story and find out what music has meant to him. So Trevor, what made you interested in uh, taking up a musical instrument at all? That's an interesting question.
1: My parents were totally unmusical. I've, I've always maintained through my life that there are no people who are actually tone deaf, but I have to say my mum and dad did a very good job of being as close to it as you could possibly be. But I suppose, as was traditional back in the 1950s, we had a, a piano, an elderly piano, tucked into a corner of the house, and inevitably, when I was little, I started banging on it. And by the time I got to the age of seven, I was starting to play tunes and with a little bit of harmony. And there was, I found some sheet music lying around of nursery rhymes. And I worked out that there was a correlation between all those funny dots and lines and wiggles and the tunes I was playing. And I more or less taught myself the very basics of reading music by the time I was, yeah, seven and a half, I suppose. And my parents, therefore, thought we probably ought to get the piano tuned. I don't think it had been tuned since about 1920. And this elderly, blind piano tuner came tapping his way into the house one day and sat in front of the piano and got chatting to my mother and asked, you know, why are you having this piano tuned? It it's, um, looks like it's been dragged out of the ark. And they said, well, a little Trevor here has um, started playing tunes. And he, they asked me, if I could play a couple of things to him. And he said, oh, he could be quite talented. You ought to go and get lessons. So I was sent off to um, a very elderly and rather peculiar, slightly disabled woman up the road called Madam Rogers, because they were all called Madame in those days. She was probably just Mrs. Rogers. And I started from there. And uh, she apparently told my parents, I was told afterwards, that um, I was quite talented and could possibly become a concert pianist. Um, And I suppose... Because I'd never been a very communicative child, you know, my 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 late brother was seven years younger than me, and felt more more like a, a child of mine than a sibling. Um, I'd never had anybody to communicate with, and I got into music and discovered that I could express myself. So by the time I'd got to the age of eleven and was a reasonably decent pianist, um, I thought, yeah, this this is possibly. The way I go. I was asked a couple of times to play pieces in assembly at junior school, and suddenly I had a bit of status. Whereas previously the other kids, um, I wouldn't say they hadn't communicated with me very much, but um, I, I wasn't was hardly the most popular guy in the school. And suddenly people were saying, "Gosh, you play the piano? What, what's what's the title of that? How do you, how do you do it? Where do your fingers go?" Um, so the whole combination of that got me very interested in music. Partly because I loved the music, but also because it actually gave me a voice. At last,
0: yes, that's lovely. But then you went on to take up the flute, didn't you? How did that happen? Uh,
1: well, when I went to the grammar school, Easttown Grammar School, which had an amazing tradition of music, uh, the inspiring music master there, Welshman called Chivon Hughes Jones, who was a published composer, uh, said that everybody had to play an orchestral instrument, um, and I thought, okay, that could be quite interesting, you know. Um, And one of the senior boys had played the oboe in assembly one morning. And I thought, I've never heard anything as beautiful as this. So I decided that I would play the oboe. And the music master had got the idea by then that he'd quite like to have a wind quartet amongst the first year boys. A flute, an oboe, a clarinet and a bassoon. And he allocated the bassoon, which I'd never ever seen before, to another old friend of mine. I say old friend, I mean, we were 11 years old at this stage. And somebody else already played the clarinet. So he had an oboe, which is what I wanted, and and a flute to allocate. And my best friend, Mick, also wanted to play the oboe. So it was decided that there would be some sort of ballot. Anyway, he came rushing up to me one day and said, um, we tossed a coin in your absence and um, I won and here's your flute. And, and I was handed this black box with what looked like a bit of gas piping inside it. And I took it home and tried to put it back to put it together again, not realising that the long silver thing, which I thought was part of it, was actually the cleaning stick. Um, But eventually worked out that this didn't seem to be terribly relevant to the instrument. And I put it together and blew it. And to my amazement, a sound came out. And then after a bit of mathematical calculation, worked out where the fingers probably went on all these shiny keys and uh, within a week, I taught myself how to play an octave scale and then discovered that if I blew in a different way, I could play another octave scale and turned up for my very, very first lesson uh, with an instrument put together the right way and with my fingers in the right place and the ability to play two octaves. And the teacher said, oh, seems to have some ability with this. And it went from there. But the, the lovely thing about playing an orchestra instrument is you're no longer on your own. So where the piano had given me I suppose, a voice for the occasional opportunities when I got to play in front of other people. With an orchestra instrument, you learn music and you get together with other people. And that absolutely transformed my life from that point on. This was a social thing, was it? Yeah, the, I think the, it, the it was. It was as much. Part of it. I it. mean, you, you yes. will understand this because yes. you, were, you were with me at yes. that time and you were playing the cello, which you'd taken yes. up possibly for social reasons partly as well. Um, but it became, it became my life quite literally. I mean, yes. I, I was I was interested in maths. I'd been a slightly math prodigy as a kid and I, I was reading at the age of three, which is all great. But it doesn't give you a social life. It doesn't give you a way of expressing yourself. It's terribly academic. I didn't have friends. I was very much a loner. But suddenly there were other people around who were doing what I was doing. There were the four of us who were learning wind instruments and we had music written for us. I mean, our our teacher composed um, a number of, of quartets for wind instruments. So suddenly there were four of us who were meeting together regularly with a similar agenda and a similar ability. We were all starting off from scratch, as it were. And it did very much become a social thing. And then by that time, my elderly piano teacher had sort of retired, and I decide, my parents decided that I would come into the local authority music scheme. So a wonderful thing called East Ham Academy of Music had just got going, almost next door to my house. And so suddenly there was a centre of interest, communication, a community of young people like me who were interested in music, partly because they
0: loved the music, but partly because they loved each other, I suppose. And that's where it all started. Yes, that's very important. They loved each other. Mm. And of course, I mean, you you say you didn't have any friends early on, but of course uh, I met you at age 11 and we became friends and have been friends ever since. Absolutely. Which is too many years to want to measure, really, at this stage. Do you think exposure to music had any other effect outside? Because you said you were a child prodigy with with mathematics beforehand Mm. and so on. Do you Mm. think it, it spilled over into anything beyond your social life, any academic pursuit or anything, or was that, for you, a completely different area? I
1: I think inevitably, once I got into music, then it became more than music because I I, I was quite an entrepreneur, I suppose, even at that age. So I started to want to organise things, and we we all started to compose. Yes, I remember. (laughs) We all all started to compose music. everybody was, and there was a guy in our class called John Walton, who was a very good violinist. And I remember our music teacher saying, he's written a string quartet. I thought, my God, I've got to catch up with this. So I then started composing. I'd I'd been writing little compositions since I was eight. And I had a book of little piano pieces and things that I'd written and hymn tunes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, But I started thinking, oh gosh, there's opportunities to do more than just play. And within a few years, I was organizing concerts and writing music for orchestra and then getting orchestras together to play the, the, the things. I also, as did many of our friends at school, got involved in church music, which became another significant part of my life. And at the age of 17, was appointed organist and choir master. sounds rather glorified expression, but I mean, there was a choir of about half a dozen and and a slightly wheezy organ um, in East Ham. And I took on that position where of course you have um, administrative responsibilities as well you have to organize your choir and over the next few years I progressed up through a number of local churches until by the time I was 19 I had an extraordinarily good choir and set up effectively a little music school around it so I'd engaged two local music teachers and a couple of friends and we had a little choir school so I had 24 boys and girls um, when I was 19 and they would go off for classes every week and we were training them in music reading and voice production and so on and so forth. So over that short period from the age of 11 up to the age of 18, music had become much more than just a thing I performed in. It, it was beginning to take over my life in, in all sorts of respects, although that was not, for me, what my career was going to be.
0: Exactly. Um, I was going to say, <clears> but you didn't, of course, then go on to do music at first, at first. did you? No. Tell us about that. Um I discussed this a lot with my
1: parents. I, I loved my music. I loved other things. I was still interested in mathematics. I was interested in money and the whole that whole side of it. And after long conversations with my father, who said, you know, music is, is, is a lovely thing, but you you need some stability. And I, 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 I totally agreed with him. I thought, I, I don't want to have to depend on it because if I'm not good enough or if I don't make enough money then it will take the pleasure, I thought, away from it. And by the time I left school, I was playing in five orchestras. I had my own choir. I was composing. I had the various chamber groups, including you, that we were playing in. uh, And I absolutely adored this. And I was aware that that could all be threatened if I went into the music profession and... For some reason, I didn't what people call make it. So I decided to become an accountant and I decided that I would stay local. I wouldn't go to university because then I could keep all my local music activity going. I could still live at home. I became articled to a chartered accountant very locally, who was also a, an old boy of our school. And on that basis, I could do my full time. The, the way articles works is quite hor- horrific. You, you work full time for the firm for a pittance. And then you are expected to do 18 hours study at home a week as a trainee accountant in your own time by correspondence course and occasionally lectures. So I took all that on. But of course, I still had the five orchestras and the choir. So I got used to working ludicrously long hours, which I quite enjoyed. And I did very well. I mean, I I took exams in London in accountancy, I came very high up in the grades and so on and so forth. Uh, And by... I suppose three, almost three years into it, I'd been promised a partnership in the firm once I finally qualified. And then... um, When something happened. Something happened. Tell us about Um, that. I was out on audit. We were auditing a shipping company in East London, which was on the verge of bankruptcy. And I had a colleague with me, um, an assistant, and... There, were, and there was another company there who were trying to sort out the receivership of this potentially bankrupt shipping company. And we knew that at the end of it, this thing was going to go bust. So auditing it and spending lots of time on advising the directors was a bit, I mean, I was 20. OK, uh, seemed a bit pointless. And it was a hot, sunny July day. And I said to my assistant on the, on the Friday afternoon, I said, Let, let's stop early, stop at four o'clock, have a break, have a cup of tea and go and chat. Uh, And we shut down the office and we went into a little room there where I had a desk and a couple of chairs. And and we started chatting about what we did in our spare time. He was very interesting. He was Indian by birth. He'd come over when he was young with his parents. Very, very intelligent. Brahmin caste. We were talking about what caste he was and what that meant for him. And he said, Trevor, what do you do do when you're not doing all this boring accountancy? I said, I'm a musician. Oh, he said, how interesting. And he, he asked what I did. And I told him about the choir and the flute and the organ and the composition and he he was fascinated he said gosh why, why didn't you become a professional musician and I recited the script about not wanting to put myself in a position where I was dependent on it and I might lose the fun and the joy of being an amateur and he said uh, don't you wish that you'd gone to music college and I said, well, it's very, very difficult to get into the top music colleges in London. I said, I, I don't know whether I would have been accepted even. And he said, aren't you curious? And th- this, this was the dangerous question. Aren't you curious to find out? And I thought, and I said, yeah, I'd love to have known if I was good enough just to take that first step into music college. And he said, well, you could find out. And I said, how? He said, we could sit here this afternoon. He said, and we could write applications just pretending that you wanted to go to music college. And we did it. We, we we sat down there and we wrote a letter together, which was meant to accompany an official application form, which I was going to expose it to get over the weekend, to the Royal Academy of Music, to the Royal College of Music, to Trinity College of Music, and to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which were the four main music conservatoires in London then, and still are. And it was going to be a joke. That, that was the intention. And um, I contacted the four places I got application forms and I filled in the forms and I attached this letter explaining my circumstances and sent them off a few days later and uh, I got a letter back very quickly from the guild hall saying the application date closing date was in January you've missed it by six months so if you're interested in applying come back next year I got a letter from the Royal College of Music saying uh, we think you're too old which felt a bit cheeky, but bearing in mind I was only 20, so I forgot that. I got a letter back from Trinity also pointing out that I'd missed the application date by some six months, and I heard nothing at all from the Royal Academy of Music. And I sort of forgot about it, and my assistant left the company. And at the end of July, I went off, as I always did in the summer, on a summer music course down at Roding School, run by the Ernest Reed Music Association. First time that I'd actually been on a summer course with them. I had an amazingly good time. I met lots of new friends, played with stunningly good conductors, and thought this was great. And when I got home, there was a letter From the Royal Academy of Music saying, effectively, this is a very unusual application, but we are prepared to consider you if you will fill in the enclosed additional form and send it back to us. By return, there was no form in the envelope. And I later discovered this was fairly typical of the Royal Academy of Music's administration at the time. So I phoned them up and said, I've got this letter and please, please send me the form. So they sent me the form and they asked what... My principal study would be if I was accepted and I put flute, piano, organ, composition and choral conducting and sent the form off and had a phone call the next day saying, you can only have one. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, oh, dear, sounds a bit restrictive. So um, I said, "Okay, I suppose it had better be flute. Um, And they said, "Um, you realise that this is an unusual application and you have missed the deadline, but we will come back to you. And about a week later, um, they contacted me again and said, we are having a special audition day for overseas applicants, uh, and we are prepared to treat you as an overseas applicant, if you could please come to the audition on that day. And by this time, I'm starting to think this is getting serious. You know, what do I do? So I thought, well, you know, the the whole idea of the joke was to find out if I would be accepted. So I suppose I need to go ahead and, and do the audition. And as the date got closer, which was towards the beginning of September, I started to think, what do I do if they say yes? I need to be able to make a choice, possibly. And I thought, if I give up my job and go to music college, I'm going to need a grant. So I said to my parents one night, who were slightly puzzled by this conversation, I said, if one day, for some reason or other, I decided I would like to go to university, and they said, "But you're not," I said, "Only, but if I were at some stage in the future to go to university, um, I, I would need a grant, and I'm curious to find out if I would qualify for one, having been in work now for three years." I said, "I'd like to put in a fake application to the local authority, pretending that I've got a university place, to ask if, in principle," they would give me a grant and I'd need you to sign the form. Um, my mother said, it's a very strange thing to do, Trevor, but if you really want to do that, then then okay. So I got a grant application form from the local authority and I filled it in and they signed it and I sent it off and I got a letter back saying, um, we understand this, this is not um, a genuine application, but we can confirm that should you find yourself with a place at university a subject to confirmation, um, we would actually give you a grant. So a box was ticked. Anyway, I did a bit of extra practice. I had had a flute lesson for years. I did a bit of extra practice. I got out a couple of pieces, Poulenc flute sonata and a Bach sonata. And I rehearsed them on my own to the best of my ability. Uh, and on the day of the audition, I secreted my flute case in my briefcase. And I told my company that I had to go to company's house in London to do some research, which is not unusual. So I headed off Into town, got to the Royal Academy of Music feeling a little bit worried, dressed very formally, of course, in a suit and tie because I'd just left the accountant's office, and was ushered into a warm up room um, seething with foreign flute players. They were from everywhere. Uh, They were lots from America, lots from all across Europe, uh, some from Eastern Europe, and they were all, I thought, stunning. I mean, I, I was very, very intimidated. So I, I went and found a quiet corner and unpacked my flute and did a little warm-up and uh, then waited in the queue. And after a while, I was ushered into the audition room where I, I played my two pieces. And uh, I was then questioned by the chairman of the audition panel, just saying, saying um, this is slightly unusual. I and mean, you you appear to be an accountant. And I said, yes. I said, I've always wanted to be a flute player. I said, and... and um, I just want to find out if I'm good enough to be accepted. And I said, I promise you one thing, that if I do get accepted and I take the decision to come here, I will work harder than any other student you've ever seen. I said, I have to prove something. And they said, well, thank you very much. You know, we'll let you know. And I said, when will you let me know? And they said, well, we have to hear the rest of the students, obviously. And then, then we have um, we have a panel t- to make the decision. And he said, it will be a few weeks. And I said, I need to know today and they looked quite concerned and I said I need to know I have to make a decision I need to know today and they said well we're terribly sorry. We, we can't tell you today and I said can you tell me where the principal's office is and they were starting to look a little defensive and they said it's it's on the ground floor and I said I'm going to go and sit outside it and I'll stay there and uh, I need to know if I'm in before I leave and they said okay you go and sit downstairs and I think I went and sat outside the principal's office at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon and I was still down there about 7 or 8 in the evening and I'd spent the time writing my resignation letter um, to my firm forgetting the fact that I was legally obliged to give three months notice as I was under articles and at about 8 o'clock the chairman of the panel came down and said "Um, tomorrow, 9 o'clock, here (laughs) And that was, that was the end of it. And on the way home, I thought, oh, what have I done? And when I got back, my parents said, you're late. And I said, I had, to, had something to do. And they said, OK, it's not unusual for me to have to work late. And I said, I've got something to tell you. And my, my, my mother said, oh, can it wait till after dinner? And I said, well, probably not. So we went and sat together in the living room. And I said, I resigned this afternoon. Oh, <laughs> Why? I said, um, I've, I've been accepted into the Royal Academy of Music, and I start tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. Oh, well, fine. It's your decision. Um, we, we will absolutely support you. So the next morning, was um, nice. I was on the tube train at eight thirty, and I met a school friend who was very proud that he had got into the Royal Academy of Music. And I said, uh, Where are you off to? He said, oh, It's my first day at the academy, and said, and mine. And he said, What have you done? <laughs> And I duly arrived at the Royal Academy of Music at nine o'clock the next morning.
0: And what happened after that? Not that day, but I mean, you well, what, at I the can, Academy, you, you took flutists for study. Yes. And, I mean, the, the first
1: thing know. that happened, of course, was I had to telephone my office on Monday oh, morning. Oh,
0: of course. And sort the grant out.
1: Yes. The grant was easy because yes. I had a pro forma. Yeah. Um, the, the office was less easy. Mm. Um, I phoned up my boss on Monday morning and he said, hello, Trevor, we've had your letter. You realise you have to give us three months' notice. So I said, yes. He said, we'll let you off. Mm. He said, you're very fortunate. We could insist that you came in. He said, you've left us with a bit of difficulty because we are a a member of staff short. So I took a deep breath and said, would you like me to come and work for you part-time freelance on the usual freelance rates? And I, I heard a sigh and he said, okay, and I said, um, also, I said, um, there's another shipping company um, which you've got and they they need an accountant to go and work for them. Would you mind if I applied for the job? It's a day a week. And I took on that job. So as well as being a student at the academy, um, I very conveniently was a part-time accountant and also company accountant for a shipping company, which I have to say did help the finances somewhat.
0: Yeah, so your entrepreneurial mm-hmm. skills started developing when you were, running church choirs and things oh absolutely
1: we're well into then, it well into it by I suppose, then.
0: if you could handle that you could handle anything I, could,
1: I, could, I thought I could definitely I mean I, I I'd been out into the big wide world I, I I was suddenly in a student environment with first year students straight out of school who had no idea why they were there no idea how to organise their lives and certainly no <laughs> idea about money and I came in from a professional background three years later. Yes, I was three years short of my 21st, three months short of my 21st birthday. And I knew what life was about. And that was helpful.
0: And you had a very varied career after that. I mean, as a professional flautist, but also being a, an accountant, I remember almost every flautist professionally that I ever met said that you were their accountant <laughs> and lots in of the other any part too. of the country. So you obviously hoovered up a lot of clients that way.
1: I had to be very careful. I I had an incredibly good time at the academy, although I was starting way I I was taken back to the beginning. It was the first few months were not easy. I remember my flute professor, who was the senior professor of flute at the academy, um, who was the principal flute with the Philharmonia, um, who had a reputation for not being an easy guy. And I, I turned up terrified at the first lesson and I played him a bit of the Mozart G major flute concerto and he looked at me and he said well you you appear to have a a flair a flair for flute playing but we have some work to do and he said um I want for the next couple of weeks you to play one note only it was b-flat I became very very good at b-flat and I I think I progressed fairly rapidly um because I, I didn't know any of the other students lots of them knew each other. I, I didn't know anybody. So I had lots of time to practice and I practiced very, very hard. And in those days, music college was far more competitive than it is now. Everybody who goes to music college now gets a chance to do everything. So everybody gets to play in the orchestras. Everybody gets a chance to do chamber music. Now, the academy wasn't like that. The academy was run on professional lines that you, if you wanted to play in the orchestra at the academy, you auditioned for it. And once you got the job, it was your job for a year. And if you didn't get through the auditions, you didn't do any orchestral playing. I did no orchestral playing in my first year at the Academy whatsoever. I never got anywhere near an orchestra. I was terribly jealous of people that had. But at the end of my first year, there were were auditions held for all the orchestras. And there were four orchestras at the Academy. And I auditioned for what was called First Orchestra, which would be for the fourth year and postgrad students. And at the end of my first year, I was appointed Principal Flute with First Orchestra at the Academy. And I turned up at the first rehearsal for First Orchestra on the first week of my second year at the Academy. and Nobody knew who the hell I was. And we were booked to do a concert at the Royal Festival Hall the week after with Bartok Concerto for Orchestra, William Overture, and a few other pieces with spectacularly difficult flute parts. And I saw the programme stuck on the wall and almost <clears> walked away.
0: Cello parts are not that far behind in difficulty, actually, Absolutely. for those pieces. But <laughs> yeah, but there's more than one cello. And there
1: was only, yes, only but, one. well, not in the solo thing.
0: section at the beginning, but yes. Anyway, so <clears throat> um,
1: I had a very good four years at the Academy. Thoroughly
0: enjoyed myself. And seeing these students who were less exposed to life than you had already been um, must have been very influential in mm. um, what you did later on. And I want to come on to that mm. in, uh, in a little while, but just park that thought because but i think we really need to let people know what else you got up to in that time as you're well known for all sorts of other things which are almost too numerous to list yeah.
1: do you mean in my time at the academy or
0: subsequent no, i'm just in your subsequent career so subsequent you're a professional career okay. I a I mean, fixer, yes. and about and,
1: and everything else I'm, i like being busy and mm. i have this annoying brain which seems to be interested in everything from antiques and architecture uh, to local history and textile construction and etc etc cetera, et cetera, and Chinese art and so on um, as far as I was concerned I was a flute player that was what I expected to do and I had sort of decided that I was going to focus on it 100% when I left the academy I had some teaching I had 20 odd private pupils and I was teaching for day and a half a week in two schools in Berkhamsted, and I had no performing work. And I contacted a well-known flute player who I had met at a masterclass I played in, and he offered me my very very first engagement, uh, which was four concerts with an orchestra which was doing a short tour in the north of England. And at that tour, I met another flute player who looked at me sideways and said, um, "I haven't seen you before." So I said, "No." And he said, you're just starting. And I said, yeah. And he said, you've got any work? And I said, well, not really. And he said, have you heard of somebody called Lloyd Webber? And I said, no. And he said, well, this is interesting. He said, he's written a musical. He said, it's called Jesus Christ Superstar. And he said, I'm one of the flutes. He said, would you like to come in and do a bit of Depping?" So I said, oh, great. And he said, I'll give you a call. He said, come, come in and do a show. So a couple of weeks later, he phoned me up and I went and did. sat in, as one did, um, sitting on the floor of the pit at Superstar. And he said, OK, he said, I'm coming tomorrow. He said, I'm not on. He said, but there'll be another person on first flute and you're on second flute. And the next night I went in and I I played in Jesus Christ Superstar, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It's brilliant, brilliant. I I, I love rock music and pop music as well. It certainly wasn't just classical. And the girl playing first flute said the same thing. She hadn't seen you before. Busy? No, I've got no work. Oh, she said, "Um, uh, you play okay, she said. "Um, Would you be interested in in being put on the books for the London Mozart players? So I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. And she said, I'll I'll have a word with the fixer. Anyway, the following week, I had a phone call um, from the London Mozart players saying, um, we're in Aberystwyth. Um, We've got a concert tonight and the second flute's got food poisoning. Could you get here by seven o'clock? So I didn't have a car. So I said, yes, I'll be there. So I managed to get a train and eventually got to Rapparistwith, where Paul Tiltelier was conducting the orchestra. And I shared a taxi with him uh, back to the hotel where we stayed together. And I got chatting to Paul Tiltelier about the music profession. And it sort of went on from there. And by, by Christmas, I was actually busy. Now, okay, the orchestra with which I'd Done that very very first concert. I was booked again, and after a year with them, they decided I would be their regular second flute and piccolo. And their admin was in a mess, and they they felt that they needed to appoint an orchestra manager to take over what had been done from the office, a fixer, somebody who would book all the players and be responsible for the standard of the orchestra and I applied for the job and when I applied for the job I was interviewed by the chief executive and by the company accountant and I said by the way I, th- I, said, I, th- I have to say I think your payment system is is not good you're paying late you're paying the wrong amounts and I, I've also devised for you and I gave him a plan of a new system for your accountancy um, a new finance plan and the chief executive looked at this and passed it over to the company accountant who said this is actually very good so I said, well, what I could do, I said I could take over the fixing of the orchestra, but I could also take over the whole finance side of of paying the players and looking after. I would want a separate bank account set up with my name on it and I, I could run that for you from home. And they said, oh, so I was appointed to that job. Um, we had about 200 concerts a year. And I suddenly found myself with the job of booking the players. What I wasn't expecting was when they told me that there were actually no lists of players, that so I had to invent it, because lots of people had refused to play for the orchestra. And he, the one list they gave me was a list of people who had said they would never play for the orchestra again. So I immediately phoned them all up and said, come and play with us, and they all agreed. And so I took it from there. And then after a year, um, one of the conductors of that orchestra went off and joined another orchestra called the Philharmonic of London and phoned me up and said, would you like to come and do for us, what you're doing for the other one. So I then had two orchestras. And then I applied for a job with another orchestra. So I had three. And then one of the orchestras divided into two separate orchestras. So I took both of those. And then I started another orchestra. And then a friend of mine was starting an orchestra in London, and I was asked to take on that one. So I had six. And then I got into session fixing. I was doing a lot of work with a conductor called Stuart Bedford, who was Ben Britton's assistant. And his brother, David Bedford, was a well-known Composer, He'd been one of the original musicians on Tubular Bells. And he, unbeknown to me at the time, I'd I'd played works by him, was one of the prime arrangers for backing tracks for top rock bands. And he was working with a number of very well-known producers, people like Trevor Horn, and that will mean something to some people, who were doing very challenging um, rock music and so on. Uh, and David said, I, I need a, I need a fixer. Would you like to work, collaborate with me on, on the pop backing tracks? And we, 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 d- we did all bands like, we did all Madness, for example. We did Madness for a long we We did ABC. We did things like Style Council and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and all those bands. So I, I got into that world at the same time. Now, Separately from this, um, I was traveling around the country as a, as a flute player and the mornings were free um, we would be often be stuck in a hotel for a week and there'd be a rehearsal in the afternoon and a show in the evening and nothing to do in the mornings. And most people went to the, went to the pub uh, and people started discovering that I knew a bit about money and finance. And I still remember very clearly a bassoonist in the orchestra said to me, Trevor, I, I hate my accountant and you know about accounts. Could you possibly, just for me, do, do my accounts and my tax for me? And I thought, one client, yeah, okay. So I I said, Dave, yeah, I'll I'll do it for you, but don't tell anybody. But he did. He started telling people. And so then I thought, well, okay, I've got three mornings. It makes sense to do in the mornings. And before I knew where I was, I had about 20 of them. and it started to grow. And I I capped the number at 50. I said, "I, I will not have more than 50 clients. And it got to 50 very, very rapidly. Um, And I held it at 50 with a waiting list, interestingly, which had, yeah, an awful lot of people on it. Um, Until my wife and I started having children. And when when we had our first child, I said I would stop touring so I could spend more time at home. Uh, And I said, I need to fund this. And for a period of 12 months, if anybody asks me to be their accountant, I will say yes. I won't advertise, but I said it might increase from 50 up to 70, 80 or whatever. And at the end of the year, um, it had gone over 300. And I suddenly found myself with quite a large accountancy practice, plus the six orchestras and the session fixing and the flute playing and my choir. And my wife, who's a professional pianist and was my accompanist, had got into music publishing and she'd been appointed editor of the British Music Yearbook and Music Teacher magazine, Um, and she said you've always enjoyed writing would you like to become a staff writer so I was then doing a monthly feature um, for Music Teacher Magazine um, and they were published by the same publishers as Classical Music Magazine who then asked me to start writing for Classical Music and then they wanted a book Um, they had been publishing the British Music Yearbook which was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it hunted a number of articles in it on advice for the music profession and they wanted to hype it off separately into a into a book and I was invited to become the editor of the first edition of the of the musicians' handbook which I started. So we then did three editions of that. And I was then approached by the Royal School of Church Music who were looking for someone to take on Their own publication, which was a quarterly publication called Not Surprisingly Church Music Quarterly, which was, I think, probably the biggest magazine on church music in the world at the time. And I was appointed managing editor, uh, which meant I had control over the whole budget and finances. And I set up an advertising agency at that time. We were selling advertising in magazines, not just for Church Music Quarterly, but for other organizations. And I appointed my next door neighbor to be my advertising executive and she was selling the advertising and I was running that company and we were selling advertising in the magazines that I was editing at the same time and then I got involved in an enormous organization called Scratch Concerts which runs a choir of at that time we had something like 10,000 singers on the books and I was initially asked by Sir David Wilcox who was conducting the choir, to provide the orchestra for it. And after five years, um, was asked by the board to become a partner in the business and to expand it. And we still run that. We run an annual event at the Albert Hall of Messiah from Scratch and various other things. And then we expanded into musical holidays for singers, taking singers around the world and giving them opportunities to sing in concert halls I um, in places like the Caribbean, in Russia and China and across Europe and so on and so forth.
0: I'd like to talk about the teaching that you do to... Uh, aspiring musicians and uh, trainee people at the Royal the Colleges Gu- and the, and at this, the moment. The because that's mm. very important at the Guildhall. Yeah. Well, you're, re- you're a professor. I'm a professor you, at there? the Guildhall, yeah. yes.
1: Professor yeah. of what? Um, I'm just professor. I, I, I asked to have a title, and they said, we don't do titles. You're just a professor at the Guildhall. <laughs> um, but this goes back 30 <laughs> years. And mm. I think par- partly as a result of producing the Musician's Handbook, which was the first book of its kind on the classical side. It was originally 27 chapters of advice written by various experts in their field. So you could read about how to become a conductor or how to become a composer, self-publishing, or how to look after your tax or copyright, or how to set up a pension plan. You know, It covered all aspects, including retirement. And that book sold like hotcakes and I got quite well known. And I had a phone call from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which I'd never actually been in, saying that they they were looking for somebody to take on a course, an elective on the degree course, which was called Music Administration. And I went in and had a chat and said, look, is there any agreed content for this elective? And they said, well, actually, no, there isn't. And I said, what I'd like to do, if you'd agree is to set up effectively what is a survival kit for musicians. I would like to have a group of students who I taught all the skills that they would need to survive in the music. How to put on a concert, how to fix an orchestra, what copyright law was, and to teach them to be musical entrepreneurs. In fact, we even had a night called Entrepreneurs' Night where they all had to come and give a presentation to the class and then we would vote on it and, and the winner would get a bottle of wine. There was an awful lot of wine around during this course I seem to remember and we developed that initially my first year I think we had seven students and in no time at all we were up at 40 or 50 people signing up and we were getting them work and they were making their way into the music profession properly equipped to become either freelance musicians who knew about the, the business, or more often, uh, musical entrepreneurs, some of whom came up with amazingly good ideas in all, so, all sorts of fields related to the music profession, and some of whom then end up on the staff of the Guildhall itself. And we've now been running that for 30 years, and that opportunity of attending those lectures is now open to all the students at the Guildhall. And as a result of that, um, I was asked to go and do talks on subjects, very often taxed, not surprisingly, Uh, at the Royal College of Music and then at Trinity and then at the Academy and then various other places around the country and also for younger musicians who were already in the profession at places like the Royal Opera House and so on. I've just been up to Manchester to do some talks the Manchester Camerata and so on, and that that is continuing, and I think that is incredibly important work. You need to be so much more than just a good musician to survive in the music profession. I mean, for any job that's advertised, there'll be dozens of people who are, as it were, good enough to do the job, but a very, very small number who know actually how to organise themselves and to run their career. And they're the ones that survive.
0: You were telling me, I think it was last night, that people shouldn't forget why they wanted to do music in the first place. Could you elaborate a bit on that? I, I
1: remember my own story. You know, the reason I didn't go to music college was not that I didn't think I was good enough, because I thought I probably would get in. But I was scared of what might happen if if the profession didn't go according to plan, that I would lose my love of music, that because I was reliant on it financially, because of all the pressures of being a professional and because perhaps I might not be quite good enough, that the thing I absolutely loved and wanted to devote my life to would not any any longer be good for me. I, I could easily see myself as a successful accountant at that age, either in industry or running a practice, with music being there in the background as the thing that kept me going. And I didn't want that situation, as it were, reversed, that <laughs> perhaps is unlikely that perhaps I was dependent on a stressful life in music and then perhaps did a bit of accountancy as a hobby in the evening. But I I remember this very clearly when I started lecturing and I could see the stress that my students were under. Also, the transition from very often being the best musician at school, you know, maybe the best trombonist your school had ever produced, and all the accolades that go with that from teachers and parents and granny coming around to listen to you at Christmas. Perhaps, perhaps maybe not if you're a trombonist. Um, but how special you are made to feel, not by choice, but because you've got this rather strange thing called talent. And talent is a hell of a burden. You know, having talent is an enormous pressure on a, on a child because you are expected to be rolled out and have to perform, and on occasions you don't want to. You know, you just love music, but you, you discover that there's all sorts of baggage attached to it. And then if you get into music college and everyone says, wow, you know, you've got into the Royal Academy of Music, that must be wonderful. And suddenly you discover that there are hundreds, hundreds who are as good as you and you feel diluted and scared. When and you
0: walked into that room, the warm up room. Oh, absolutely horrific. The, yeah. Absolutely horrific. And that's like that for some people who then yeah. go to the college. And, and I think we all know people who mm. who that's happened to. They and, lose their way. it's not been good for
1: them. They lose their way in that first mm. year. And also because they have not been told what the music profession is. They, yeah. they they turn up with an instrument in their hands or their voice and they think their job their sole job is over three or four years to make it. Now that in their mind is become a performer on the thing that they turned up with in their hands or whatever it is, so flute, violin, whatever it happens to be. It's a very very narrow view and it gets narrowed the longer you train because you become more and more specialised. You, you you're not just a player; you become a baroque player. Um, You're not just a Baroque player, you become an Italian style Baroque player and you become narrower and narrower. And so your opportunities to succeed diminish the more time you spend there. And I have something I say to all my students in their very, very first year. And it's a line they almost have to learn to recite. And it is, you can all be successful. You may need to redefine success. I say that so often. You can all be successful. That first line, I absolutely believe every one of those students is special. To get into music conservatoire in London or elsewhere, you have to be enormously talented. But your talent isn't confined to and defined by your instrument or your voice. I had some years ago, this is appalling, I had some years ago a very, very talented pianist in my class and he was so focused on being a pianist he had no other life whatsoever and I could see that there was enormous talent in any, he was incredibly intelligent, very creative, very, very bright and he came to me at the end of his time with me and he said, Trevor, he said, what, what would be the best thing I could do to advance my career? And I looked at him and said, cut your hands off And he said, what? And I said, you are so focused. You've come to believe that your talent is so totally related to your instrument that you can't see actually how good you are in so many other respects. I said, if I took the piano away from you, your talent would still exist inside you. I said, you are a musician far more than you are a pianist. And beyond that, your personal ability as an individual, is much bigger than your musical talent. I said. So the best thing you can actually do, and I wasn't entirely serious, but he did take the point. You know, I say mm-hmm. I say to students, you know, you, you think you're a brilliant clarinetist, but if I, if some for some awful reason tomorrow you could never play the clarinet again, your talent would be intact. You can all be successful, but you may need to redefine success. That narrow vision that narrow ambition you arrived here with, may not be right for you.
0: Now, because we're running out of time a bit, I'm afraid we've got to come to the the end. And I'm going to ask you (laughs) one last question, which is, um, so supposing there wasn't a piano in the front room in your house... And you'd never had piano lessons. And there was no free flute tuition available when you went up to East Grammar School for boys. What would your life have turned out like? That's such a difficult question. It's a difficult
1: question because as far back as I can remember, well, I can remember earlier, but music's always been there. And the thought that somehow I wouldn't have gravitated to it is very difficult to comprehend. I can't I can't imagine life without it. So okay, let let's imagine I think what you're possibly asking, if, if I if I got in front of the piano at the age of seven and I'd banged it a few times and there was no sign of any ability whatsoever. I uh,
0: didn't mean that. No. No. I mean you, I think, you but you know most children know. today do not have the opportunity. Yes, like I know that. that's
1: true. I mean we you and I were incredibly lucky. We were we were incredibly lucky. Had I not had the opportunity that's an interesting
0: question. There was no piano there. And there was, and no, there was no peripatetic music system. And I think that's describing how things mm, are mm. now, probably in the majority of places. I think it
1: probably is. At I, the moment. I I, I I can see what music does for young people. Um, I have run children's choirs, and I've watched children be transformed by... The expectation that they have to fulfill in being a musician, my, my sons were choristers at Westminster Abbey by the age of eight they were they were professional musicians effectively and they they learned about standards and about there being no compromise and that is a brilliant thing for children we we we, we don't we undervalue children um, when I was running my children's choirs i i, I even though I undervalued them, I couldn't believe how much they could learn, how quickly they could learn, and how much they developed as people. It, it contributes so much to the development of a child. You, you become a social being, as I did once I stopped only playing the piano. You learn to cooperate. You learn to read. You learn to read not just music, but you learn to read words. You learn, you learn to respond to stimulation, of musical stimulation and other stimulation. You, 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 you learn to work with your colleagues and your friends. You learn to compromise you learn about standards you learn about hard work but you learn that there's something out there that you can love and i think that that for me is the most important thing you know academic achievement is great but if you've got something which actually gets to the that very deep part of you where you actually live and music can do that that's an opportunity that must be given to every child surely
0: i think that's a fantastic note to end on thanks ever so much my pleasure Brainland podcasts deal with many matters, musical and brain-related, that have spun off from our original opera project. For links to our other podcasts, check out our website, brainlandtheopera.co.uk, and click on the cartoon called The Brainland Podcast.